All right, we're going to spend some time now looking at the Scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 139. So the Psalms are, are pretty close to the middle of our Bibles, and you can open up there to Psalm 139. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself, so we spend time every week opening the Scriptures together. Uh, we're in one of two topical sermons on a bigger theme that is sometimes referred to as the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei is just the Latin term for the image of God. So big idea is that in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created human beings in his image, and so all human beings have dignity. There are two holidays in January that we often pause and take note of with our sermons. Sometimes we'll do a whole sermon on it. Sometimes we'll just kind of reference those. But one is Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is today. The other is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is uh, a week from Monday. And so both of those are connected to this idea that God has made people in his image, and so human beings have dignity. So we're going to talk about both issues that are big issues in our society and how they're connected back to this bigger doctrine of God made us with dignity. Today, as we focus on the sanctity of human life, even in the womb, we want to remember the wise words of Dr. Seuss in the book and slash movie, I guess, Horton Hears a Who, and here it is, a person is a person no matter how small. Y'all heard that one before? A person is a person no matter how small, and we see this played out in Psalm 139. As you open to Psalm 139, we'll see a larger theme that's even bigger than the importance of life in the womb, and that is the bigger theme that God pursues us. So the sermon title today is God Pursues Us. Uh, One of the repeated words here is search. It's a word in the Old Testament that's often used to talk about a kind of searching where you never find what you're looking for, like something that's unsearchable. And so there's this idea that human beings were very deep and complex. Some of that goes back to the fact that we're made in the image of God, right? God made us to reflect his glory. So human beings are very complex, very uh, deep and hard to search out who we are and what we really think. But God can, and God does. God knows us. He pursues us. He wants to have a relationship with us, and he made us. And so we see this theme played out in Psalm 139. As you think about it, think about your own reaction to the reality of someone wanting to pursue you. I think we generally have two reactions. A lot of it's based on our mood. A lot of it's based on our shame. A lot of it's based on the person that we're interacting with, right? Whether we can trust them or not. One reaction is we want to hide from people. We want to hide maybe because of our shame or maybe because we don't trust that person, right? And I know many of us have experienced that. Well, really all of us. That's a, that's a universal human experience. There's another reaction, and that's when we know someone is kind and they want to get to know us, that kind of draws something out in our heart that is excited. Wow, this person is pursuing me. This person actually wants to know me. Have you ever been around a person that just asks good questions, that cares about you and your situation, that wants to get to know you? That's the picture that we have of God. He's a God who pursues us, and he's not a dangerous pursuer. He's someone that we can trust, and he pursues us in love. So let's read Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Sorry, I just was a little distracted for a second because I looked out the back doors and there's snow coming down outside. Did you all know it's snowing today? Okay, sorry. Um, Hardly anybody's here because of the incredible blizzard. Thank you. Those of you that are in the room, you get extra points today. Um, Those of you that are watching online, just know it's actually snowing in central Texas. It happens like every few years. Okay, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a psalm primarily about a God who pursues us and wants to know us and who has made us and who delights in us. And then there's this turn right at the end, maybe you noticed those last few verses, where all of a sudden he's like, I love you, I love you, love you. And he's like, God, I hate the evil people. Slay the evil people. This week has been a week of of violence, political violence. 2020 was a year of political violence. I just want to be clear that there is often a searching and a pursuit of evil. The Bible promises that evil will be one day destroyed. But what God has called us into is a relationship of peace with him because he's forgiven us and then to extend that peace with the people around us. So the way that we execute God's judgment on earth here and now is by proclaiming his forgiveness in the cross. And I just want to be clear about that as our hearts are drawn up like the psalmist, oh God, destroy evil. Yes, we want evil to be done. But notice the last verse. Let me read the last verse again. He says, destroy evil, oh God, I hate it. And then he says, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. To be a Christian is to be someone that recognizes that even as we desire evil to be destroyed and to be done with in the world, that we deserve that judgment. And so we turn from judgment to grace. We say, God, search that out in me. Will you take that away from me? Will you help me to be an agent of grace and forgiveness and transformation in our world? We're going to look at this in more depth as we move forward, but this is a tense time, crazy beginning to a new year. We were all hoping, you know, all the craziness would be done heading out of 2020. We need God's help. So I'm going to pray that he would meet us here 
We believe that his answers are in his word, but we believe that we need a spirit that we would hear the answers and listen to him. So let me pray. God, we ask that you would meet us as we study your word, as we look at it. Help us to hear from you. Help us to recognize your voice. Help us to be um, the gift of non-anxious presence in our families and in our communities in a world that is just going nuts right now, Father. We recognize that you are our peace. Help us to know you. Help us to see in this text, as we've talked about already, that you pursue us, that you want a relationship with us, that even though we deserve to be slayed with all the wicked of the world, we've all fallen short of your glory, Lord. You offer grace and forgiveness and peace. Help us to know your peace in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three primary ways, as we see the text unfolding, that we see God pursuing us. Three big ways, three doctrines, really, um, that, that draw out this, this reaction from us that God pursues us, therefore we want to pursue God. And so we see, first of all, that God knows us. God knows us. The term for that, the kind of theological term is omniscience. Raise your hand if you've heard that word, omniscience, the omniscience of God. That just means he knows everything, right? But specifically, he knows us, right? It's more personal than just knowing everything. God knows He knows us. The second thing we'll see is that God is present with us. The theological term is omnipresence. Um, So again, it's more than just he's present everywhere. He's present with us in a personal way. That's part of what the psalmist is wondering at here. And then finally, God makes us. God makes us. He is a creator, provider, sustainer of creation. God makes us. So first of all, we see that God knows us. God knows us. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. As I said before, usually when this text is used or this word is used in Hebrew search, it's something's unsearchable, right? It's usually used in the negative, this thing that can't be found, but we can be found by God. Sometimes we don't even know what we're thinking. We don't even know what we're feeling. We don't even understand ourselves, but God understands us. God, you search me. You know me. Verse 2 says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. So this is a kind of a totality. Hebrew poetry often has parallelism uh, where it states something in pairs and then it states it again in another pair. It's like pair upon pair. So we've got, you search out my, uh, you know when I sit and when I rise, right? So that's kind of saying all of life. When I'm sitting down, when I get up, right? Like when I lay down at night, when I get up in the morning, you discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 3, you search out my path and my laying down. So it's kind of a parallel again, you know, getting up, sitting down, when I'm walking along the path, when I'm lying down at night. He's trying to say everything, okay? He's poetically saying everything. God knows everything about us. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Verse 4 says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. God even knows what you're going to say before you say it. Now, I have a bad habit of guessing what people are trying to say and finishing their sentences, and I'm sorry if I've done that to you. I I find myself doing that, and I'm like, oh, i got to stop that. Um, I was actually joking with our women's ministry director about that the other day, Kathy Rocco, and she does it too, and then she finished my sentence after I had just confessed. Yeah, so a lot of us struggle with that. This is a whole other level, though. You know, like intuitively knowing what you think someone's going to say is different than being the God of the universe who knows. Like God knows. He knows everything. He is absolutely sovereign. Remember, sovereign is this word we saw in the Daniel study. Sovereign means he reigns, sovereign. He, he rules, he's king. God is in charge of everything. 
And if God is gracious and he loves you, that's good and sweet. If God is an ogre who's out to get you, that's a horrifying thought. The psalmist is inviting us into a posture of seeing God as good and seeing this overwhelming knowledge of us as something that we can trust. Again, we've, we've seen this in our different relationships. There are people that we know, and it's sweet that they know us. And then there are people that we know, and we're like, that person's not safe. I don't, I don't want them to know me, right? I, I need to not tell that person my secrets because I can't trust them. God is the one that knows all your secrets, and you can trust him. Now, verse 5, it comes to like the highest point in verse 5. It says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Robert Alter is a famous Jewish scholar and translator that says this is very aggressive language. This could be seen as like hunting language in God's pursuit of us. Like he's trapped us and there's nowhere we can run. But Alter says, because of the broader concept, we should see it more as artist language. Right? Later on in the text, we're going to see he's an artist crafting us, making us, delighting in us. And so his absolute sovereignty and his absolute intimate knowledge of you is the knowledge of an artist over his creation. He loves you. He delights in you. Verse 6, this is the proper response. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. This should draw out praise and trust. We should run to God with his knowledge of us and reveal more of ourselves to him instead of running away, right? Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. After they sinned, they felt shame and they hid. They hid themselves. And what did God do? God pursued them. God said, Adam, where are you? God's asking you and me that still today. He's calling your name and he's saying, where are you? And he's not saying it because he doesn't know where you are. Do you understand that? He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. He's inviting you into a relationship with him. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. The psalmist goes on and says, it's high. I cannot attain it. This is creaturely knowing. John Frame is a philosopher and Christian theologian that talks about this uh, creator-creature distinction, right? God knows everything. We know some things. We can know things, and we have to assert that, because we're in a world where some people are like, you can't even know stuff, right? This world's so crazy, we can't know anything. We just got to follow our guts, right? No, the Bible is pretty clear. We are responsible actors that can know things, but we know in a limited, small, childish, sheep-like way, <laughs> creaturely knowing. It's one of my favorite phrases from John Frame, creaturely knowing. So such knowledge that God has is too wonderful for me. It causes me to praise God. It's wonderful. It's mysterious. It's amazing. But it's so high I cannot attain it. So I grabbed a picture of kids playing hide-and-seek. I used to love playing hide-and-seek. I don't know if you enjoyed playing hide-and-seek. It's a fun game. But we need to remove that game from our relationship with God, right? It's fun to find your favorite hiding spot you know, at the grandparents' house or in the woods or in your backyard when you're playing hide-and-seek as a kid, we need to stop that with God. God knows you. He invites you to then reveal yourself to him. This is a paradox of the Christian life. He knows everything, but he still wants you to tell you. He still wants you to tell him what you're thinking, what you're feeling. He wants you to, we call this prayer, right? 
He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to cry to him when you're sad. He wants you to tell him what you think you need. He wants you to trust him with your future. Will you make 2021 a year where we talk to the God who knows us? Because his knowledge of us is too wonderful. It's something we can't even fully comprehend. The next thing that we see as we move through this vision of God's pursuit of us is that he's present with us. God is present with us. Verse 7 says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? So he's thinking about hide and seek still. The psalmist hasn't shaken it yet. Where can I hide from you? And he's kind of working it out. Verbal processing here maybe. I think really it's poetry for our sake. Where could I possibly run away from you, God? He goes on in verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Sheol is the Old Testament word that is kind of broad. It can mean hell, or it can just mean the grave, or it can just mean like the depths of the earth. Broad meaning, right? So he's poetically saying, if I go up there, you're there. If I go down there, you're there. He's saying, the highest you could go, the lowest you could go. There's nowhere to escape God. God is present everywhere. Verse 9, more poetic language. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Um, In the Hebrew worldview, the sea is in the west and the morning is in the east, right? So he's now saying east and west. It's like I could go as far as I could go that way. I could go far as I could go that way. You're everywhere. God, there's nowhere I can run from you. I can't hide from you because you are present with me. Verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. This should remind us of Psalm 23, the shepherd song. He's a good shepherd. He guides us. He steadies us. He loves us. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Places that we think no one can see, God can see. Places, things, people, situations that are inscrutable for us, can't be figured out, can't be sorted out, can be sorted out by God. That's what he's saying here. And sometimes it feels like overly obvious, right? But, but we need to come back to these basic truths. What does it mean that God is God? Well, God's bigger than us. God made everything. God sees everything. God knows everything. God's present everywhere. There's nowhere we can get away from him, so we shouldn't keep trying to get away from him. We should run to him. I had a friend that went to uh, India. Gosh, it's and maybe 20 years ago now, and it rocked his faith because it was so scary. It was so broken. There was so much disease. There was so much poverty. There was so much death. There was so much uh, filth. I grabbed a picture here of a slum where there's an open trench down the middle of the street for the sewage. Any of you ever walked through streets like that where they had the open? Yeah, some of you have seen that. It's just overwhelming. You can see it, you can touch it, sometimes you accidentally step in it. These kinds of places, sometimes in American language, we sometimes say, uh, I think all English speakers might say this phrase, God forsaken. Have you ever heard that phrase before? This is a God forsaken place. The psalmist is saying that doesn't exist. There really is no God forsaken place. There are places where we have forsaken the true and the good and the beautiful. 
And there are places where more and more people have forsaken the good and the true and the beautiful, but there's no place and no people that God has forsaken. God is everywhere. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? I had a um, guy that I'd heard lecture a long time ago that ran this group called the International Justice Mission. Um, He had been working with the UN to document the uh, genocide, the killing, the abuse, the mass murder in Rwanda, probably 30 years ago now. He came back just shaken, right? An experience like that where you see so much death, so much destruction, so much gore. It shakes you to your soul. And he was praying and just groaning over it with God, searching the scriptures. And he felt like he kept saying, God, where were you? And God, where are you? Right? Leaning towards that God-forsaken concept. And as he searched the scriptures, particularly the Psalms, what he felt like the Psalms were saying back to him, What he felt like God was saying to him through the scripture was, where were my people? Where were my people? So as I've thought through, what does it mean that no place is God forsaken, but God wants to work through us? What does that mean for us that God is everywhere and God is everywhere in a sense that's personal to us as human beings who struggle and cry and endure difficulty ourselves? I think of two ways that we need to express God's presence with us. A very personal way and then a more social way. And there, there are two verses that I think are really important. First John 1, 8 and 9. An important one. This is one to, to write down. It's about the confession of sin and wickedness in our own hearts. And then James five sixteen. It's about the confession of sin and the asking of others to pray for us and the praying for others. Um, so there are two confession verses. One is like my relationship with God. And we would call this repentance. So if God is really present with me, I need to repent of the ways I've turned away from him, of the ways I haven't trusted him, but I've trusted my own flesh, or I've rebelled openly against his laws and commands for me. I need to repent. I need to say, God, I've done my own thing. I'm turning back to you. I trust you to save me. First John 1, 8 and 9 is real clear about repentance. Turn from yourself, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus. It says there's two ways we can handle sin. We can either deny it, we're turning from God and his presence with us, or we can confess it. We can agree with God and trust him to forgive us and cleanse us. That's repentance. Then as we look at James 5.16, I want to use the word represent. Represent. We repent and we represent. We represent God's presence then. Once we've come to know it personally, God's forgiving, gracious presence for us, then James 5.16, we confess our sins to other people. We pray for other people. We ask them to pray for us. We begin this social network of the gospel, of bringing God's presence where we go, of spreading his goodness. We repent and we represent God's presence. This brings us to the last concept that we see in this text, and that is that God makes us. God Makes us. God is a creator. He's an artist. He crafts us in the womb. Verse 13 says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We praise God because He has fearfully and wonderfully made us. We respect His work. We don't say, God, you ruined me. You're a jerk. You shouldn't have made me like this. We say, Thank you, God, that you made me like this. Help me to use what you've given me for your glory. God knit us together. Um, There's a 
an argument that a lot of popular atheists make that now that we know how things work in the world of physics and biology, that means we don't have to believe in God anymore. Because here's how it goes. The idea is that when you don't know how something works, you just say, God did that. But once you know how something works, then you're smart and you know that God didn't do it anymore, right? It's sometimes called the God of the gaps theory. Um, But the Bible teaches that there are processes by which God made the universe. And so there are biological physics processes that we can learn and understand because God has made the universe in an orderly way. And yet God still creates the world and sustains the world by the power of his word. Hebrews says Jesus himself sustains. He's like holding all the atoms together by the power of his word. And so we look at this text and we say, okay, even though we understand way more about the physical processes now of how birth and how children develop, we also believe that God is at work, that God is creating art in the womb. And that's why Christians have consistently been pro-life, have been against abortion. And this is not just a new American political thing. This has been throughout the 2,000-year history of the church. Abortions happened back in the Roman Empire, and Christians were against it. Christians were for preserving life and for helping the weak and helping those on the outside. That's been something that Christians have always believed. Now, I want to try to convince you that this is the biblical position, but I also want to continue to remind you that God is a God of forgiveness. And I know in our society, many women have had abortions and maybe had an abortion thinking that was the right thing to do and then later regret it and have great sadness over that. And I just want you to know that God is a God of forgiveness. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all done things that later on we said, I I shouldn't have done that. My wife and I had the blessing of getting to participate in some uh, abortion recovery retreats through Hope Pregnancy Center. We encourage you to check that out. Those are options. Those are uh, weekend-long retreats just helping you work through that and be reminded of the forgiveness and grace we have in Christ. I got to be kind of like the attending pastor to encourage and help folks in those situations. Um, You don't need to go to a retreat to find that forgiveness and grace. You can talk to God about it personally. Know that God makes us, and that's why we believe in the sanctity of life. A person is a person no matter how small. I grabbed a picture here of a baby in the womb. If you can throw that up there. Uh, can you throw that picture up there? Uh, it looks like maybe there's something wrong with the computer. Oh, there it is. Okay. Um, we see more and more images now. We have like better technology to see into the uh, secret places, if you will, here, the way the psalm describes it. Um, we know more about how it all works. And again, that doesn't drive us to say, oh, well, then God's not involved. No, that drives us more and more to say, God, this is too wonderful for me. This knowledge is too high for me to worship God and his artistry, to worship him for what he's made. Again, verse 14, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now, he's not switching to saying, we've moved from the womb to now God creates babies down in the dirt. He's just using poetic language for these secret hidden places. Hebrew parallel structure. If you have a confusing poetic phrase in a psalm or a proverb, look to the next verse after or before and you'll see a a parallel. You'll see like, okay, he's explaining this in a different way here. 
Verse 16 says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So again, with the totality, the sovereignty, the bigness of God here, like, God, you you got like a book, and my whole life is written in your book, right? I don't think it's really like a book with ink and paper, right? It's just, again, this knowledge is too wonderful for us. God has it all handled. Maybe he's got a giant God book, right? The specifics are less important. The poetic image here is God's got it all settled. He's sovereign. That's the important thing being taught here. Not whether he uses, you know, a Bic pen or an ancient vellum. It's that God has it all nailed down and figured out because he's sovereign and he is in control. And again, that can either terrify us or that can lead us to, to lean in towards him with trust, to pursue him. In faith. And again, the next verse, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Again, this leads the psalmist to praise. God, you're big. God, you're good. And this is so hard. If you've been through difficult things, it's so hard to make sense of how could God be sovereign if, if evil and abuse have been a part of my life? God is sovereign over the evil and abuse. God can turn the evil and abuse for good. God does not Love, evil, and abuse. God does not create evil and abuse in your life. But God is so big that he can turn these things. We saw that in the, the life of Joseph. When Joseph comes to the end, he's like, yeah, you, you did evil. But God used that for good. We, we, it's hard. That blows our brains, right? Like It's hard for us to make sense of that. But here, we're brought back to this reality. We can trust him. How precious are your thoughts. Oh, God, you are so good to me. I I love you. I don't understand how these details work out. Verse 18, if I could count your thoughts to me, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. He's working this out. It's like the idea, a couple of different images that commentators say this idea is pulling out. One is how we might wake up in the middle of the night and be thinking of the word of God or be praying. It's this uh, phrase, the watches of the night that you see repeatedly throughout the Psalms. That's what a lot of commentators think is being referenced here. Like my thoughts are fixated on you, Lord. I keep coming back to you. Um, this is a little piece of advice an older man gave me years ago. If, if you're woken up in the middle of the night, don't just be mad about it, but pray or meditate on Scripture. That's a great opportunity for you right there. Like maybe God wants me to talk to him. He woke me up in the middle of the night. That's a great habit. And we have something like this, we think, going on here. Another image that a lot of commentators see here is the image of you go to sleep, you dream something really beautiful, and you wake up, and you're like, oh, man, I wish I was still in that dream. Has that ever happened to you? Man, that was a really awesome dream. Or, or maybe, I wish I could remember that dream, because I remember it was good, but I can't remember what happened. You're trying to remember it. Here, it's like a dream, and he wakes up, but he's still in the dream, because God's still with him. I wake, I'm still with you. How precious to me are your thoughts, oh God. So, how do we live out the importance of God's care for life in the womb, that God makes us, he creates us, that he sees us as an artist, sees his work, and he loves us? Well, a great summary for this is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, we're saved not by our works, but by what God has done. It's his grace. It's his gift. We trust in him by faith. But then Ephesians 2, 10 says, but he has prepared in advance good works for us to do. So this idea of God's created us and he's the one that gets the credit for our salvation 
And it's all about just trusting him, not about what we do to earn his love. We receive his love by faith, yet we still work hard and we do things to express our trust in him. He's given us good works to do. We still do good things, not to win his love, but because he loves us. And I want to apply that grid here as well. God makes us. We don't have to make ourselves. We don't have to like earn dignity. God gives us dignity. Therefore, we want to show dignity to others as well. And so I just kind of want to address culturally where we're at. Um, I think it's becoming more and more cool to criticize that conservative Christians are concerned about abortion as a problem, right? Um, I don't know if you've heard this complaint, but it's like, that's all we're concerned about. We're not concerned about anything else. And another critique is because a lot of corrupt politicians use this as a tool of manipulation. And I just want to say, yeah, we can grant that sometimes we're too concerned about one thing and not other things. Sure, that doesn't mean we should stop being concerned about it, right? The other thing we could grant is, yes, people use good things to manipulate people. Every issue, that's the case, right? So again, we don't stop caring about this issue because it's used in a manipulative way sometimes in our society. For sure it is. Many issues are used to manipulate people. So we want to acknowledge that. You know what? You're right, but I still care about this issue. You know what? You're right, but I still care about this issue. And one way that I would argue this is when we think about all the other issues, the scale of the abortion issue is just this whole other scale, right? Uh, Abortion was legalized the year I was born. So it feels personal, right? Gen X is smaller than it would have been otherwise. 60 million abortions in America since 1973. That's a huge scale. We would say the killing of innocent lives, 60 million, and the vast majority of those were not because of trauma or abuse. The vast majority of those were for social reasons or convenience reasons. And so we would say, man, just the scale of that should, should draw our attention. That doesn't mean you can't be devoted to other issues. I'm not saying you should only care about this issue or nothing else. I'm just saying this issue is important, right? There are other issues out there, poverty, mass incarceration, uh, education, hunger, child abuse. But just the scale of millions versus thousands of people affected puts this in a whole other ballpark. The only thing that even comes close is child abuse, And I think these are very closely related, right? They both are a result of us not seeing children as valuable. We should see them as gifts from God. So one way we could be involved is to partner with Hope Pregnancy Center. I just want to recommend that group to you. It's a local group that our church already gives funds to. We send a lot of volunteers to. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't worked with them before, to to consider working with them or donating to them. They come alongside women that are facing an unwanted pregnancy and try to materially help them. How can we help you? Either help you figure out how to be a loving, caring uh, mother, father, caretaker for this child, or to give that child up for adoption to someone else that can be a, a good, loving caretaker for this child, to show dignity to this child. Because a person is a person no matter how small. It's hopepc.com. Uh, we were going to have one of the representatives come speak to us today, but we had a blizzard, so she couldn't make it in. She lives uh, about 20 miles out. And so I highly recommend that to you. Um, another ministry that we've gotten involved with a lot in the last few years, it's a little newer, is Foster Love Bell County. And they come alongside those who are trying to foster kids or adopt and caseworkers in the community, again, helping to tackle the issue of do we really care about children? 
Are we really going to give them dignity to honor them? Again, recognizing that just scale of problems in our society, abortions here, child abuse is here, everything else is, is down here. Um, another thing that I think we need to do is just care for the children in our sphere of influence, right? Begin being a people that are modeling and showing an alternative way of seeing children. And kind of two twin things we need to work on as we care for children. One is delight and one is discipline. And based on your background, if you had an overly harsh, you know, discipline environment you grew up with, you might run to the delight side, like we just got to have fun and be everybody's best friend. And if you grew up in kind of a chaotic, delightful childhood, uh, there was some danger there. And you're like, we need, we need discipline and boundaries, right? Recognize that biblically, we are to give children both. Children need to know the delight of a God who sees them as wonderful, who crafts them as an artist, who loves them. They need to know the truth of the gospel, the good news of grace. They also need to know the boundaries of, of God's law and discipline and safety. We need to teach these things to children. We need to engage them spiritually to be there to pray for, mentor, encourage, whether you have your own children, whether you're an aunt and uncle in the body of Christ, a Sunday school teacher, uh, a public school teacher, whatever it might be. We need to encourage and love the children God's put, uh, put around us. And then I want to give two like very overly specific pieces of advice for parents. Uh, these are things that I see. I'm a grandpa now, so I get to be the curmudgeon old grandpa guy now. Um, two things that I see are really out of control in the way we raise the next generation. One is screens. Um, screens, there's been all kinds of research done on both video games, social media, and entertainment. It's super addictive, and it's destructive to a child's brain. You've got to limit that. I'm not saying never. I'm saying limit it. Limit it. Limit screen time with children. Adults, that's for free. You need that as well, okay? <laughs> you need it as well, but especially children. And then the other thing is teach kids to work hard. Teach kids to work hard. That's becoming a lost reality in our culture. God has made us to work hard, right? If you look at the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, the Sabbath is make sure you rest today because you're going to be working six days. Well, I think we've kind of flipped that sometimes in our culture. Part of why we don't know how to rest is because we're kind of never really working and never really resting, and we've got it all mixed up, right? Teach kids to work hard, to be productive, to apply themselves. We kind of want to protect ourselves or protect our children and say like, okay, well, when you're an old person, then you have to work hard and be miserable. But when you're a child, just play, right? Just be happy. And yes, we want kids to play and have fun, but we want to teach them at, at an appropriate age level as they get older more and more to work hard and to be productive. Okay, those are my two pieces of grandpa advice. Um, God makes us. Uh, a favorite song of mine that has illustrated this is our own Kendrick Rashad did an album back in the spring, and the most popular song on his album, the one that's gotten the most attention and the most play, is a song called Black Girl, Black Boy. And in it, he's just talking about the beauty of how God made you as an individual. He's talking about the beauty of hey, don't be ashamed. Some people are going to say the way you're made is shameful. Recognize that God delights in you. God is an artist. And so that's, again, I want to come back to that. Recognize that God made you unique. God colored you and shaped you and filled you with particular interests and skills. God creatively made you as a piece of art. Recognize that. Recognize that God 
made us, and then bring that same kind of awe and love to the people around you. Okay, we'll, we'll finish here. The big idea is that God pursues us. God pursues us. We have this last phrase of the psalmist kind of working himself out, like, God, you're so great. God, you're so great. That just makes me want to see all the evil men out there destroyed. And if you've been abused, if you've been hurt, if you've seen injustice, you can recognize this in yourself as well. Yeah, I just, I want injustice to stop. I want there to be no more evil, no more abuse. And that is a right desire in our hearts. But the psalmist turns and says, but Lord, look in me. I I know there's still evil in me. I know there's still wickedness in me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, pursue me, and I'm going to give my heart to you. Luke 15, Jesus paints the pursuing heart of God with three parables. Christy read one of those for us during story time, the parable of the lost sheep. In that series of parables, we've got a parable of a lost coin, parable of a lost sheep, and parable of a lost son. All three of those repeat the same idea that God is pursuing you in love. God loves you. And Jesus says, this is the message. This is the message to share. And then he ends with the parable of the lost son, where the lost son is found by his father, but there's another son who thinks that he does everything right. He's angry and he's standing outside of the father's party and he doesn't want to go in. And Jesus leaves that story hanging. He leaves it hanging to give us a decision point to say, which one are we going to be? Are we going to be the lost one that God has found and says, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me, for loving me. Thank you for taking my sin and giving me your righteousness. Is that who we're going to be? Or are we going to be the self-righteous one that says, God, you created an unjust world. God, this is an unjust system. I don't like how you're doing things, and I don't want to have anything to do with you. And in the story, the crazy thing is, that's the good son. In human sociology, the son that refuses to allow God to pursue him is self-righteous and moral. Who are we going to be? Are we going to be the ones that recognize our own weakness and give ourselves over to Jesus? Are we going to have a kind of moralism that makes us say, you know what? This isn't right. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to burn down buildings and break glass and do whatever it takes to establish my righteous rule on earth. Or are we going to do what the church has always done and trust God by proclaiming the gospel and serving other people in love? In two weeks, we're going to begin a series in Jude, and the theme is contending for the faith. The way that we contend for the faith is not through violence. The word is fight. That's what contend means. The way that we contend for the faith is by proclaiming the truth and serving others in love. And we do that because we have a God who pursues us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. Help us to be your presence in this world. Help us to share the hope that we have in you, that you've saved us, and you are our only hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.